This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of integration and guidance. My economic point of view is from ground level. It's a point of view sometimes described as agrarian. That means that in ordering the economy of a household or community or nation, I would put nature first, the economies of land use second, the manufacturing economy third, and the consumer economy fourth. The first law of such an economy would be what the agriculturalist Sir Albert Howard called the law of return. This law requires that what is taken from nature must be given back. The fertility cycle must be maintained in continuous rotation. The primary value in this economy would be the capacity of the natural and cultural systems to renew themselves. An authentic economy would be based upon renewable resources, land, water, ecological health. These resources, if they are to stay renewable to human use, will depend upon resources of culture that also must be kept renewable. Accurate local memory, truthful accounting, continuous maintenance, unwastefulness, and a democratic distribution of now rare practical arts and skills. The economic virtues would thus be honesty, thrift, care, good work, generosity, and imagination, from which we have compassion. That primary value and these virtues are essential to what we have been calling sustainability. If we pursue limitless growth now, we impose ever narrower limits on the future. If we put spending first, we put solvency last. If we put wants first, we put needs last. If we put consumption first, we put health last. If we put money first, we put food last. If for some spurious reason, such as economic growth or economic recovery, we put people and their comfort first before nature and the land-based economies, then nature, sooner or later, will put people last. And now these words from Genesis 2 and 3. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, 
and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. In his book, The Careless Society, John McKnight recounts the story of the European pioneers as they crossed the Alleghenies and started to settle the Midwest. As they did so, they found the land was covered with forests. And with great effort, they felled the trees, pulled up the stumps, and planted their crops in the rich, loamy soil. When they finally reached the western edge of the place we now call Indiana, the forest stopped, and ahead lay a thousand miles of the great grass prairie. The Europeans were puzzled by this new environment. Some even called it the Great Desert. It seemed untillable. The earth was often very wet, and it was covered with centuries of tangled and matted grasses. The settlers found that the prairie sod could not be cut with their cast iron plows, and that the wet earth stuck to their plowshares. Even a team of the best oxen bogged down after a few yards of tugging. The iron plow was a a useless tool to farm the prairie soil. And the pioneers were stymied for nearly two decades. Their western march was momentarily halted. But in 1837, a blacksmith in the town of Grand Detour, Illinois, invented a new tool. His name was John Deere. D-E-E-R-E. And the tool was a plow made of steel. It was sharp enough to cut through matted grasses and smooth enough to cast off the mud. It was a simple tool, the sodbuster, that opened the great prairies to agricultural development. 
John McKnight says, Sauk County, Wisconsin, that's S-A-U-K, Sauk County, Wisconsin, is the part of that prairie where I have a home. It is named after the Sauk Indians. In 1673, Father Marquette was the first European to lay his eyes upon their land. Any noise can be a call to being present in the moment. In the moment. <laughs> In 1673, Father Marquette was the first European to lay his eyes upon that land. And he founded, founded a village laid out in regular patterns on a plain beside the Wisconsin River. And he called the place Prairie du Sac. The village was surrounded by fields that had provided maize, beans, and squash for the Sauk people for generations, reaching back into unrecorded time. When the European settlers arrived at the Sauk Prairie in 1837, the government forced the native Sauk people west of the Mississippi River. And the settlers came with John Deere's new invention and used the tool to open the land to a new kind of agriculture. They ignored the traditional ways of the Sauk Indians and used their sod-busting tool for planting wheat. Initially, the soil was generous, and the farmers thrived. However, each year the soil lost more of its nurturing power. It was only 30 years after the Europeans arrived with their new technology that the land was depleted. Wheat farming became uneconomical and thousands of farmers left Wisconsin seeking new land with sod to bust. It took the Europeans and their new technology just one generation to turn their new homeland into a desert. The Sauk Indians, who knew how to sustain themselves on the prairie, were banished to another kind of desert called a reservation. And even they forgot about the techniques and tools that had sustained them on the prairie for generations. And that is how three deserts were created. Wisconsin, the reservation, and the memories of a people. One of their leaders, a chief of the Sauk, was named Black Hawk. And after his people were exiled, Black Hawk, looking back, said of the prairie, there we always had plenty. Our children never cried from hunger, neither were our people in want. The rapids of our river furnished us with an abundance of excellent fish, and the land, being very fertile, never failed to produce good crops of corn, beans, pumpkins, and squash. Here our village stood for more than 100 years. Our village was healthy, and there was no place in the country possessing such advantages nor hunting grounds better than ours. If a prophet had come to our village in those days and told us that the things were to take place which have since come to pass, none of our people would have believed the prophecy. But we know the settlers came with their new tools, and the prophecy was fulfilled. One of Blackhawk's Wintu sisters described the result. The white people never cared for land, or deer, or bear. When we kill meat, we eat it all. When we dig roots, we make little holes. When we build houses, we make little holes. When we burn grass for grasshoppers, we don't ruin things. We shake down acorns and pine nuts. We don't chop down trees. We only use dead weed. But the whites plow up the ground, pull down the trees, kill everything. The tree says, don't, I am sore, don't hurt me. But they chop it down and cut it up. 
The spirit of the land hates them. They blast out trees and stir it up to its depths. They saw up the trees. That hurts them. They blast rocks and scatter them on the ground. The rock says, don't. You are hurting me. But the white people pay no attention. When we use rocks, we take only little round ones for cooking. How can the spirit of the earth like the white man? Everywhere they have touched the earth, it is sore. Blackhawk and his Wintu sister tell us that the land has a spirit. Their community on the prairie, their ecology, was a people guided by that spirit. When John Deere's people came to the Sauk Prairie, they exercised the prairie spirit in the name of a new god, technology. Because it was a god of their making, they believed they were gods. And they made a desert. There are incredible possibilities if we are willing to fail to be gods. Powerful line that John McKnight closes that section. There are incredible possibilities if we are willing to fail to be gods. It turns out it's hard enough to be human, as, and as we'll explore this morning, there are no shortcuts in that endeavor either. And so let's go with Jesus into the desert. It is the empty time, just before morning. The light just beginning to touch the tops of the hills, just beginning to palm the skins of the desert stones. First one stone and then another begins to change color. As in slow grandeur, the sun lifts into red-orange sky. First one stone and then another emerges from shadow. Small solitudes of darkness in the wider solitude of wilderness, in the emptiness of early morning. Jesus is awake, blankets clutch to keep out the cold while he sits and watches stars fade in the spreading dawn. Hunger gnaws at his belly like a dog chewing a bone. Looking at a stone, he thinks, how like a loaf of bread this rock appears. How comforting this food would be. Lifting his head in the direction of the holy city, Jesus pictures the sunrise on the rooftops of the temple, gleaming in the light like the spires of marble mountains. He imagines his feet astride that proud building's pinnacle and himself not weak, but mighty, not hungry, but full, not, vul not vulnerable, not breakable should he fall. The wind begins to rise, stirs the dry and scrawny grasses. Jesus ponders the passage of time, the rise and fall of kingdoms, the tides of marching armies, the endless quests for power that sweep up people and nations like sands in a desert wind. He imagines himself at the head of a host of armored thousands, lands and nations to serve him like the pharaohs, like David, like Caesar ruling from Rome. <clears throat> Jesus sighs 
and stands and stretches, a solitary and hungry, yet somehow satisfied man. And he folds the dusty blankets. He will not bid the stones turn to bread today to ease his pressing hunger. For the hungry and poor of the world cannot, and he is in the world to bear their burden. He will not evade frail humanness today or deny his utter mortality, for even the mighty of the world cannot, and he is in the world to bear their burden. He will not seek the throne of a kingdom today, selfish wealth or glory, for the outcasts and hurting of the world cannot, and he is in the world to bear their burden. Day has come to the wilderness around him. The sun is full and blazing. Saying, get away from me, Satan, Jesus starts to walk from the desert testing toward the towns and the cities where his ministry of love will begin. His feet leave a trail of prints in the sand, a passing reminder that no shortcut leads to where he is going. poem entitled Desert Lesson by Andrew King. There are incredible possibilities if we are willing to fail to be gods. Lent is a time to acknowledge that in fact we are not gods. To remember that from dust we came and to dust we shall return. And yet society around us beckons with ways to game the system, to trump the process, to fast forward to a better future. Call now for my can't-miss weight loss plan. Lose 30 pounds in 30 days. My secret is yours for only $19.99. Struggling with being a parent? Read my new book and you'll have a new kid by Friday. Feeling sad? Coca-Cola says, open happiness. And if a cold soda doesn't do the trick, Volkswagen says, get in, get happy. Not confident around someone you're attracted to? Axe body spray will fix that. <laughs> I don't know if it works for all of us, but you know, so they say. Every day we are bombarded with such promises of having what we want and having it now. But here's the thing. There are no shortcuts to being human. Jesus goes into the desert seeking to embrace his humanity. And he goes for 40 days. Not two days. Not two weeks. 40 days. That's the biblical equivalent of a serious amount of time. Like enough time to flood the whole earth. Or a microcosm of the number of years one might wander in the wilderness. According to the Talmud, at age 40, a person transitions from one level of wisdom to the next. Though in my case, we're still waiting for that to kick in. But, you know, we can hope. After Moses led the Jewish people for 40 years in the wilderness, he told them in Deuteronomy 29, God has not given you a heart to know and eyes to see and ears to hear until this day. 
other words, it took 40 years for them to come to that place of understanding. And so 40 signifies an intentional process, a process of renewal, a process of wholeness. Jesus, in other words, is going all in here in his solidarity with humanity. And embracing one's humanity is not an easy thing to do. And so temptation looms as the hunger pangs set in and the tempter wastes no time. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Yet on the streets and in the fields of Nazareth, Jesus has learned that bread does not come quickly or cheaply. It takes a farmer to till the soil and sow the seed. It takes a season of rain and sunshine, wind and clouds, many hands to weed and harvest, to thresh and to preserve, to grind and knead, to bake and to serve. A shortcut for such a thorough process is fool's gold. And even if a shortcut could be had, what of the wages for those who weed and harvest, the income for those who sow and later sell? What shortcut is there for the sense of community forged while working the land side by side of conversations had while kneading the dough and baking in the hearth of relationships created at market and at table? There are no shortcuts to community. There are no shortcuts to wholeness. There are no shortcuts to being human. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Despite the hunger in his belly and the ache in his bones, Jesus replies, Humanity does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knows that to be human is to be physical and to require physical sustenance. But he also knows the sustenance that comes from feeding the inner life. A sustenance that requires connection with others and with God. Relational beings hunger for bread and for more than bread. When we think we can solve the struggles of humanity through shortcuts provided by science, technology, or capitalism, perhaps we imagine that we are gods. And so maybe we need to hear again the words of E.F. Schumacher, who said back in 1973 that the guidance we need cannot be found in science or technology, but it can be found in the traditional wisdom of humankind. It can be found in the tried and tested ways of being human, which know that shortcuts always disappoint, that God and nature cannot be subverted. The guidance we need can be found in such traditional wisdom, the kind shared around the table or the campfire, the kind handed down across generations. It can be found in every word that comes from the mouth of God and in the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made 
a human. Lent invites us with 40 days to explore this. It invites us to consider a new practice or to dust off an old one. Perhaps a fast of food on certain days foregone out of solidarity with those who have no security when it comes even to their next meal. Or quitting a certain behavior or indulgence or even a favorite practice inviting a focus on deeper matters. Or an intention to learn about local food supply and shortages or to sharing meals with strangers, or reading a book, a book on wisdom from a native tradition or other source that perhaps you're less familiar with. Lent may be a chance to hear anew the very words of our still-speaking God in the voices of the poor, in the rocks, in the trees, and the glaciers who cry out, Stop! You're hurting us! But whether we choose any of these or none of these, may we remember our humanness, that from dust we came, and to dust we shall return. May we recall our oneness with all of humanity, and may we remember the one who refused the bread of convenience but chose instead the bread of solidarity and suffering, of community and of healing, whose own body offered as a gift, which comes to us as the kind of bread that truly gives life. There are incredible possibilities if we are willing to fail to be God's. Jesus was brave enough to face and embrace his humanity. But I wonder, am I? Amen. And namaste.
And now as you go from this place, seeking to be the person God made you to be, seeking to be a human, may you look to the one who showed us that most beautiful picture that being human is found in ultimately giving your life away. As you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Mm-hmm.